The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Linnell Long is a Vietnamese adoptee who arrived in Australia in the early 1970s and was adopted into a white Australian family in regional Victoria. She is the founder of the Intercountry Adoptee Voices, or ICAV, which began in Australia in 1998 and is now the largest platform worldwide, bringing together leaders of intercountry adoptee-led groups around the globe. She was the adoptee representative on the National Intercountry Adoption Advisory Group, which advised the former Federal Attorney General Department on Intercountry Adoption. She's an author and contributor to a number of books, including The Colour of Time, a longitudinal exploration of intercountry adoption in Australia. She was the contributor to the House of Representatives inquiry into the adoption of children from overseas in Australia. She's an educator and an advocate for adult intercountry adoptees. And in May 2019, was invited to be the adoptee representative at the Hague Working Group on addressing and preventing illicit practices in adoption. She's a guest speaker and presenter and blogger and critical thinker in intercountry adoption. Today's topic is one that can ignite a lot of emotion and strong opinions, but it's a really good example of how sometimes good intentions can go very, very wrong. We're talking about intercountry adoption today, and I'm honored to have today's guest, Linnell Long here. Welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Linnell. Thank you for having me. I want to start with asking you what the concept of doing good means to you personally. I guess uh, for me, it's it's trying to um, do something that helps other people without causing any harm. Uh, with a focus on harm, to me, I guess having lived the life of an intercountry adoptee, focusing on the harm. Or the, or the good that's done emotionally. Because, you know, in intercountry adoption, a lot of it we talk about as a very much a save and rescue theme is what predominates, right? But yet, what we don't hear very often talked about uh, in intercountry adoption is how does the child experience it emotionally? Uh, and that's where we as intercountry adoptees really try and speak out and elevate that perspective because it is the most untalked about as to how we emotionally go in the long term, having been to country adopted with all those do-good motivations, but yet the reality can sometimes be very, very different. So a lot of my work uh, in my life now is to reach out to my fellow adoptees and try and provide a safe space for them to be able to unpack and, and unravel a lot of what being in the country adopted means and is for us 
and to try and create the space that is safe for them to do that in because a lot of our life we get thrown comments that are ill thought of um, and just very naive and, and curious, but yet actually for us being thrown these naive questions all the time can actually do quite a bit of harm, you know, such as just asking all the time, you know, where are you really from? Mm. When people see us where we look one way but we actually speak or sound a completely different way because our, our race is usually what people judge us on. So you founded ICAV or Intercountry Adoptee Voices back in 1998 as a support network for your fellow intercountry adoptees. What were the circumstances that motivated you to take that step and set up ICAV? Well, it was my own experience, to be honest. I grew up in Australia in, in the 1970s. I was adopted here as kind of the first on mass generation in Australia. And in that experience growing up in rural Australia, I was very isolated. My adoptive parents were told, just love a child like this, she's your own and everything will be fine. They weren't told anything. And, and I guess back then, to be fair, social workers had no clue about, you know, the long-term journey for inter-country adoptees. And, and uh, you know, the white Australia policy was, was all about assimilate, assimilate, you know, any of the immigrants who entered Australia, we were expected to just become Australian. And that was very much the case with inter-country adoptees. And so my experience growing up in, in Australia at that time was hugely isolating and very much um, minimising what my reality really was. People just didn't understand how it could even be difficult. Um, and so having to grow up in an environment like that with no support was extremely difficult and had a lot of emotional long-term impact on me. And when I got to the stage where I was reaching out looking for help, there was really no places and spaces for that. And so that's, that's what motivated me to create it. And I had had experience beforehand with another similar traumatic experience area where I had learned the value of group healing. And because of that amazing and powerful impact on my life, I decided that, you know, this is what was really needed. I needed to create a space where people like me would actually come into and be supported and most importantly receive validation for their experiences. And what was the reception like? Were there a whole lot of other intercountry adoptees out there looking for that same experience that you were hoping to offer? I guess at the beginning it was just, you know, we just had one, two, three and slowly over time it just built up and having connected into the post-adoption organisation here in New South Wales, PAP. You know, they actually took my name and number because I'd offered to do this. And as people made contact with organisations like that, they would put them in contact with me. So very, very slowly in the first five years, you know, we, we got to 20, 30, 40, and it just started to grow. And because I worked in technology, I worked for IBM for many years, my background is to know the power of the internet and so I guess I harnessed that very quickly and built a website and um, that actually led to ICAV being a worldwide network from the beginning because very early in the first five years because other adoptees around the world were mirroring my experience. They were isolated, they had nowhere to go in their own countries, there was no support and they found ICAV on the internet and so very early I had people joining from the Netherlands, from Switzerland, from the USA, from, you know, Germany. And, and it was amazing. It was like, wow, suddenly for me, it was like validation that, you know what, 
There is definitely a need for support for fellow adoptees. It's an incredible achievement. You should be very proud of yourself. <laughs> I want to begin to delve a bit deeper into intercountry adoption and its impacts by reading a piece written by a man called Daniel Ibn Zaid, who was born in Lebanon and adopted by Americans. And he wrote, adoption is in and of itself a violence-based inequality. It is candy-coated, marketed and packaged to seemingly concerned families and children, but it is an economically and politically incentivized crime. It stems culturally and historically from the peculiar institution of Anglo-Saxon indentured servitude and not family creation. It is not universal and is not considered valid by most communal cultures. It is a treating of symptoms and not of disease. It is a negation of families and an, an annihilation of communities, not imbued with any notion of humanity due to the adoptive culture's inscribed bias concerning race, class, and human relevancy. What are your thoughts on this piece of writing, Linnell? I, I love Daniel's writing. He's absolutely on the mark from many angles. It is quite contentious for people to hear that who haven't immersed themselves in understanding intercountry adoption. But for those of us who live it, and for people like me who've connected to adoptees over the last 20 years, um, around the world, I have thousands of intercountry adoptees that I connect with who are in my network. It is absolutely mirrored all over the world. And, and, and Daniel is one of the few, you know, there are quite a few pioneers in our movement, and he's definitely one of those key people. And I acknowledge that this kind of perspective can be really difficult for society at large to hear because largely, you know, we see the glamorized version of intercountry adoption on media by and large. And it's damaging because it shows only one perspective and one angle and very much that colonial view of adoption. Absolutely. Lots of people have a view that intercountry adoption is a selfless act or something that is inherently just good because how could giving a child in need of a home, a home, be anything but good? Can you explain to us why something that can seem so good on the outside is actually the opposite? Yeah, yeah. I think when you look at the experiences that we live in, and we we can say this, I can say this with confidence now because I've met so many adoptees and, and so many of them have actually reunited. And so when you also get the validation from a reunion perspective and from a 20, 30, 40 year later perspective, that's when you really start to realise that it's much more complex. Whereas a lot of the viewpoint that people start with of intercountry adoption, it comes from having very little experience and definitely very little lived experience perspective. So we, we come at it from a point of view that says, you know, after 40, 50, 70 years now of intercountry adoption, uh, we can see the same patterns, the same problems, the same systemic issues, same underlying root causes. And for sure, you know, I think the biggest challenge for adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents today is how do you actually validate and confirm that your child that you think that you're adopting is actually a true legitimate orphan? An orphan in the sense of the UN definition, having lost both parents, having lost kin, all kin. And this is where we as intercountry adoptees really challenge 
the way in which intercultural adoptions talk about and say that, you know, a lot of us are not actually true orphans. A lot of us have not been properly relinquished with a true understanding legally of what adoption means, because in, in some of these countries, you know, you're dealing with parents who who don't have that um, knowledge and education to know legally that actually their rights to the child are separated forever. In so many cases now we hear from, you know, I'll just pick one country, but it's mirrored across so many, you know, Uganda, Ethiopia, where the parents in these countries are typically told by the adoption um, agencies and the orphanage owners that, you know, oh, bring your children to us because we will educate them how and give them food. And you've got to remember the perspective these people come from. They're coming from usually poverty where, you know, their drivers are survival. So they want to make sure their child has food, education, clothing and shelter. If they can't provide that on a very basic level, they look to these orphanages to provide that. And the orphanages are like our version in the Western world of, of a childcare centre, you know, where you send your children for the day or for the week in some cases, and they will get all the basic necessities because you're busy as parents maintaining your survival needs. In our world, it's going and paying the mortgage and getting their two-person income. In these countries, it's about the parents being able to go and work and find food and enough shelter and clothing. And so they want somewhere for their children, just like us in the Western world need somewhere for our children because we can't look after them 24 by seven. So when you talk to prospective parents from that perspective and they suddenly start to gain a glimpse of how people in third world countries use orphanages and see orphanages, then they start to open up their mind and realise that, oh, actually, you know, orphanages aren't about what we Westerners think orphanages are. We think of orphanages as the place where children go when their parents are dead, when there is nowhere for that child to be except on the street. So it's a very different scenario. And, and I think a lot of prospective parents because of institutions like the Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption, the prospective parents can be blindly led to believe that if a country that has been sanctioned and agreed to follow the Hague Convention, or has, you know, even for countries that haven't agreed, if they're putting a child up for adoption, they're assuming that the government has done all the checks and balances to make sure that, you know, has all the kids been notified. Has the community been given an option to look after that child? Is there anyone who wants to look after that child or do they have the means? So there's just so much to unpack and so much that you could talk about in this topic because, you know, we just assume that all of that questioning and all of that analysis and critical thinking has been done before a child is released to be adopted. And we know as having lived the experience that that's actually not true. So for my example, my own personal example, I came out of the Vietnam War. I have no documents, I have no paperwork. My parents flew in, did my adoption under a uh, private lawyer, um, and to this day I don't have a single piece of paperwork for my adoption. All the questions have to be asked. How did my parents know that I was actually relinquished from my parents? We don't know. We have no proof that there was ever any relinquishment. I don't know if I was trafficked. I don't know if I was stolen off the street. Who would know? Until adoptive parents, prospective parents can actually say, I know for sure where my child came from and I've double-checked, triple-checked. I'm not just believing the words of the lawyer or the the agency. This is how far the checking has to go 
for adoptive parents to be absolutely certain that their child is a true orphan who was really relinquished with with full knowledge of what that relinquishment meant. So, you know, it's just so grey and shady. There is no real black and white in this stuff. And knowing what I know about the orphanage industry and um, the capacity to put those checks and balances in place at the country level, do you think it's actually possible for prospective parents to fully understand the picture of the child that they're hoping to adopt and really be certain that all of those checks and balances have been done? No, I don't think in the current climate they can. And I think what's needed is a huge amount of resources and independent organisations where that double, triple checking should be done by independent people who are not gaining from an adoption transaction. And that's where the big problems occur is that, you know, too often these orphanages are checking the children, but they've also got the financial incentive to make a child adoptable because they're earning a lot of money off it. So where is their incentive to double, triple check independently? It just doesn't exist. The Hague Convention does nothing to enforce these type of standards. It says it as a lovely, beautiful guideline and framework that does absolutely nothing to enforce or to even check. So, and, and adoptive parents are placing all their trust in this without really knowing how it all actually works in reality. And I think we can draw similarities with people that are volunteering at orphanages, for example, where organisations such as schools and other travel companies, for example, are placing their trust in the orphanage that's telling them that yes, all of these children are orphans, they all need your support and so on. And we know that the vast majority of children who end up in orphanages are not orphans. Some figures go up to 90, over 90%. The average is about 80, I think it's accepted at the moment. And we also know that poverty is one of the main drivers for family separation. I wanna talk a bit more about this commodification of children in the context of intercountry adoption and this idea that it's, I guess, potentially more lucrative to place children with adoptive parents than it is to reunify with family. Yeah, when you consider that um, on average, you know, the, I think at the moment the standard uh, price that many adoption agencies, particularly in America, are making off a child is around 40,000 US dollars. Um, and that, that can vary. And this is where the biggest problem is, is that, you know, under the framework of the Hague Convention, there is no capping of money. There is no guidance or framework of what reasonable fees should be. Um, it is all up to the discretion of both the sending and the receiving country to determine finances. And there are no checks and balances on it. I know at the moment, you know, the Hague County Bureau and, and, and all the countries that are signatories of the Hague are trying to deal with the financial aspects of inter-country adoption, but it's very, very hard if you don't actually have an enforcement arm to ensure that, you know, fees are reasonable um, or that they are fair. So, so for example, you know, if you've got a child that's been relinquished in, in the Philippines, for example, and the lawyers cost X, why is it that when the lawyers in America get involved with the adoption, the fees suddenly jump, you know, 10 times more? Um, how, how is that even hmm. equitable or fair? And, and why are we even involving money in intercountry adoption when in a domestic adoption, 
There's no Very money. often there is no money trading at all. Yeah. So this is where inter-country adoption has become so much more impacted by corruption and commodification compared to domestic adoption. It's when money is involved, it changes the motivations of everyone involved and it just pollutes it. You know, originally, yes, inter-country adoption may have started, you know, with the right intention, but, you know, I, I still question even that. The knowledge I have of how it impacts a child to be uplifted out of their country, culture, identity, race, and to be placed into usually white situations, it can never be great for our emotional integrity because we just struggle so much to deal with belonging in two places and countries and cultures and, and trying to find our place in the world where we never really fit. You know, we're never truly accepted by our adoptive country culture and people and race. We might be by our immediate adoptive family, but not generally by the large because we, we experience so much, you know, microaggressions and racism. And people always judge us based on how we look. Um, they don't judge us based on how we speak or how we think because they can't necessarily see that. Uh, and that's where the confusion arises for inter-country adoptees is that we are in our bodies that belong to our racial heritage, but we are placed into a, a white situation where we absorb and are almost brainwashed because it's not like we're given a choice. And this is where a lot of us talk about inter-country adoption is very much a forced practice. It is placed upon us with no choice from us as the children. Even for the older inter-country adoptees, you know, they can often be inter-country adopted, but they've not been actually given a choice. They're yeah. just told, you're going to America or Australia and you're going to be given a better life. And it's not necessarily better. And, and we shouldn't even be equating, you know, better when it comes to a Western white world with a third world country because that is such a colonial mindset anyway. Yeah. Assume that better is the Western white. You know, yes. and this is where a lot of that mentality speaks into an inter country adoptee's um, emotional being where we are absorbing all of the assumptions that are placed upon us in our life to assume that white is better. And so no wonder we struggle with our identity um, and struggle very much emotionally to accept who we are racially when we're being told that white is better. So many of us grow up and the first thing we talk about is the struggle of looking in the mirror and not actually being able to integrate what we see back at us compared to what we think we look like and what we're projecting because of what's being projected on us by our white adopted family. You are one of us, you are us. And so we are thinking very white, but when we look in the mirror, we see brown, yellow, whatever colour we happen to be, and we just can't, we can't match it up. And it causes so much psychological split and confusion um, and that is why you see so many more of us, you know, in so much of the research, we are requested to be overly represented in prisons, mental health institutes, and mental health struggles, a huge, huge impact and issue which goes unaddressed in every adoptive country because they don't provide any services that are specific to each country adoptees. And do you think those impacts are compounded by, for, for a lot of adoptees, the impacts of institutionalisation at such an early age as well? For a lot of the adoptees who've had institutionalisation, those traumas go undealt with because so many of the white adoptive families just assume that when you get an adopted child, they assume you're like a blank slate 
So they negate the whole experience that that child has had, whether that might have been a good or a bad. So for example, some of the older inter-country doctors you share with me talk about, you know, the friends they've made and how when they're just uplifted out of a country at the age of eight, nine, ten, suddenly they're not allowed to have any more contact with those friends who they have are so close to. That's like almost like they're their substitute family because they've shared an experience for so many years in that institute, whether that be good, bad or ugly. And suddenly they're not allowed to connect with them anymore because the, the adoptive family just assumes, oh, you're one of us, you don't need any of that anymore. Your heritage doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. We are giving you a better life. Let's get on with it. And that mentality is rife throughout America where so much of the education is just so little, it is not enough to assume that trauma is the background of all of these children and that they need to be dealt with in a very different parenting style that is about trauma and dealing with attachment styles and and coping with loss, huge amounts of loss and grief and, and trying to come to terms with that rather than just assuming you've got this, you know, blank slate child who's just going to slot into your family and be yeah. be wonderful. I think the biggest film that most people can probably relate to when they think of this is Lion, you know, where yeah. you have a um, an Indian boy who's been brought to an Australian family. You see him slot in because he's the perfect adoptive child who fits the mantra and the assumptions that adoptive parents have. Fits in, doesn't seem to say anything and, and doesn't seem to have any troubles really except that later in the film you realise how many troubles he's really dealing with he's just not sharing it but then you, on the flip side you see his second brother come and he's almost portrayed as you know this disruptive incredibly ungrateful child who just won't fit in because he's just struggling and, and that's where you can see from trauma with both of them having been in a background of an orphanage for many years They've both had absolutely extremely traumatic experiences, but how one exhibits it compared to the other can be very, very different. And we are so different in how we deal with our past and with our traumas. And that's where adoptive parents are just usually so unprepared to deal with the realities. And also our communities as adoptive countries are so under-funded and under-serviced and under-supported. And so the adoptive parents can struggle, the adoptee can struggle, and it just all snowballs, trauma upon trauma upon trauma. The way that um, an adoptive parent deals and responds to the adoptee who's had trauma, especially as an older age person coming here, absolutely is critical to how that that person will grow up as an adoptee. Yeah. You know, I hear too often from all the worst case scenarios where that person is still suffering in mental health institutes. And the pain is incredible when the adoptive family actually add to their original trauma so they've come with that trauma but then they get the lack of validation the lack of empathy the lack of care the lack of knowledge from their adoptive parents who just want them to what act as if nothing happened in their life beforehand and they can't you know they probably never will and and that's not well accepted you know because the fairy tale didn't work out and and the parents just can't come to grips with that and can't be supporting in the way that that person needs. So I want to talk a little bit about that kind of idea you mentioned before of a better life. And it seems that international adoption is a a system that's designed to meet the demands of the prospective parents rather than being in the best interests of the child itself. And that 
adoption or intercountry adoption itself is marketed as a solution to the sad and the destitute and horrible lives that are perceived to be the situation of these children overseas. And then it kind of perpetuates this idea that adoptive parents are selfless, that they're doing good, that they're rescuing children, giving them a better life. But I'm interested in what this means, this whole idea of a better life, because it's a it's a cultural construct, right? Yeah, I, I have real deep problems with the term a better life to me and to many adoptees that are, you know, critically thinking. It is an apples for apples. You know, you can't you can't put a tag on a life and say, well, this is better than that, because straight away that that's very judgmental. And and I think you know, having lived that life in between two cultures, which I do, you know, I'm constantly challenging how we as a Western white society place ourselves up higher as being better. When really, if you spend any time travelling the world and absorbing yourself with cultures and peoples of different races and backgrounds. There is so much to be gained from their cultures and races and, and, and value systems and beliefs. And it is not about being better or worse. It's just different. It's about the fact that, you know, when you remove us from what is our heritage and what is imprinted into our DNA, it's a massive um, impact that you're having. And it needs to be thought of from a, a, a wider viewpoint because it is not the best thing to take us out of where we belong. You know, just as it would not be the best thing to take you from where you belong, where you've been born, and your natural place in the world. It's not natural. Intercountry adoption is not natural. Yeah. It is a very unnatural act. And uh, yeah, as, as Daniel Levin talked about, there are cultures and races that do not believe in doing that for good reason. Uh, and I think emotionally those cultures are probably more advanced if they come from that perspective because they're actually viewing it from a lifetime perspective rather than from a, um, an adoption done as a single transaction point of view, which is how you know, our Western world, which is very much about the moment and, and a, bit, a very individualistic um, viewpoint, we see adoption as from that lens, which is that it's about gaining just for the individual. We don't think about what the kin of that child is lost and how are they going to be impacted for the next you know, decades and generations. You know, they lose their children. They lose the most valuable resource of their country. We are taking and stealing those children from the countries that need us the most. You know, if I had been given all of the resources that I've been given through my adoption but in my country, I would have been a valuable asset to my country. Yeah. I wouldn't have been removed in Vietnam if they had kept their hundreds and thousands of children instead of Operation Baby Lift. All of those children, if they had been given the same money and resources to grow up in opportunities in Vietnam, to be educated, wow, that society, I mean, they're, they're already goers anyway in Vietnam, I know that. But, you know, imagine how much further that country would be. And the same applies to every other birth country that we represent. If we had kept the hundreds of thousands of children, look at Korea, they had kept all of those people there. How much more would that economy be doing well because they keep the most valuable resource? It is very colonial to think that you can just uplift a child and move it and give it a better life when actually you're only measuring better from a purely economic point of view from a, you know, I will give them food, shelter and education. That, that is such a short-term thinking. You've written before about people failing to grasp the multiple losses that are both emotional and spiritual. So the loss of identity, 
about of knowing basic facts about yourself, the loss of kin, which you just spoke about, and the loss for kin, uh, and the absence of not being able to have that all-important reflection back from oneself from biological family. Is this something that you think the majority of adoptees experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know there are some adoptees who would say, no, I've totally gained. And, and I don't invalidate that, but I do say that, um, yes, they've gained. But when I actually, interestingly, when I really question and talk to those adoptees who just talk about what they've gained and don't want to talk about it from the gains and the losses, it's quite usual that they haven't really gone and spent any time in their birth country or even been interested in it. They say they've gained, but they're only looking at it from a very one-length perspective. For me, when I talk about inter-country adoption, I I guess because I've had to really explore and delve into and, and refine my original identity and culture, it has made me acutely aware that there are a lot of things that I just blindly believed but actually, until I went to explore, I didn't know what I was even missing because how can you if you don't if you don't think you're missing anything? Yeah. If you've been told all your life, you know, you've gained, you've gained, you've gained, it's not as if you're going to go and look for something that you think you might have lost. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's where we as inter-country doctors try and speak out about this stuff, to try and give a more balanced perspective to it. It's not black and white. It's not about just a child gaining all this stuff and, and, and everything in life is hunky-dory. There is just so much more complexity to it than that. And we really need to get to the point where we talk about inter-country adoption from a very balanced perspective, where we can talk about the gains just as much as we'll talk about the losses and, and the negatives. And maybe people criticise ICAV as being too negative, too much talking about the losses, but that is because we're trying to balance out the perspective that is yeah. so overly positive and so overly optimistic with a bit of reality say hang on guys let's shift it back because i'm hoping that by being overly critical overly uh talking about the negatives that it will shift us back somewhat towards middle ground and at the same time i also recognize that there are some cases in inter-country adoption situations where absolutely the parents did relinquish or that the child truly was an orphan yeah. but it's by and large not the majority of it and that's where we have to get that shift back towards middle ground over, I guess, the past few years in my career where I've worked heavily on orphanages through Rethink Orphanages and the issue of children in institutions, I've come across a, a lot of information and horror stories is, is the best way that I can put it, of children being adopted internationally and being rehomed, I think is the term that I've seen used or sent back to their country of origin. I think I even came across a website that had children available with photos for rehoming of countless failed adoptions. Can you unpack this a little bit? Because it's just, it's, it's incomprehensible. It is, it is incomprehensible. And, and this is where, as, as ICAV, we talk about it all from a very global perspective. America really is the the worst case of all of these because you know they have had a history of being the biggest receiving country in the world so that's why you see so many of their worst case scenarios coming out of america they're the biggest receiving country 
and they've also had you know the some of the worst standards in the world in terms of rehoming deportation and the fact that they haven't even given automatic citizenship to adoptees who were adopted from my era it's just uncomprehensible that a country can even consider still conducting inter-country adoption when they have failed so miserably in so many key areas to give permanency to give stability to give an identity to these children who were brought out as just infants you know and, and this is where a lot of people just don't even know about what's really the picture of inter-country adoption they just might know one or two children that have been adopted but it's not very often that we talk about inter-country adoption as a global phenomenon and how it's really happened over 70 you know the last 70 years and the patterns that you see where can the change ever happen? I don't know. To me, it's just too far gone, I guess. The reality is the legislation in a lot of our countries does nothing to protect adoptees. We talk about our rights all the time. Our rights to our identity, number one, is the biggest thing that gets abused in inter-country adoption. Our original names get obliterated because of the very fact that we get given an adoption order which gives us a brand new birth certificate that replaces our original birth certificate. This is the number one issue that affects domestic and inter-country adoptees around the world that we unite on. And um, it is the fact that we have no right to our original identity. So, and that's just a, a human rights tragedy that we can't even know who we even were born as. Me, for instance, I don't even have any documentation that tells me what my original name was, except for a passport, which could have been made up, who knows. You know, some of these basic human rights, our right to identity, our right to our culture and our right to, to knowing our ethnicity and race and, and, and the values and the belief systems and the culture and the, and the religion that comes with that. Like, it is just assumed that it's okay to wipe all of that out and replace it with our adoptive families' views and beliefs and everything. And we don't even get a say. How is that in our best interest? I don't know. So, so much of what happens just happens on this level where we're not actually um, we're not actually questioning it or even listening to intercountry adoptees is what we even think about it. And this is where you know recently I was invited to the to the US State um, Adoption Symposium, and so much of the mantra and the and the premise their premise is our mandate is here to facilitate intercountry adoption. Their mandate is not to challenge or question whether they should happen; it's just to make them happen. And this is where fundamentally as adoptees, we have such a huge challenge ahead of us because governments are basically facilitating what happens to our very lives and doing so without really thinking about our human rights and just facilitating. And then they won't really listen to us who live it where we say, hey, this is wrong. We actually believe this is morally, ethically wrong to just obliterate and wipe out our identity. You can't do that to us, we're people. You know, we want to have a say. And this is where it all gets so political because we are very much silenced in mainstream media. People don't want to hear what we have to say about our rights. And they certainly don't want to give us a platform at the right places. Some organisations, and you know, like the Hague Permanent Bureau is starting to give us a bit of a voice and a bit of a view, which is amazing. And the first time in 70 years, but by and large, it's doesn't happen and, mm. and if they do invite us it's usually for making it look like we're being invited but not really to really listen to us so for example in australia how many times have i been to the australian federal government and the australian state governments and said 
We need a response to those who are being trafficked because their lives are impacted for the rest of their life and they have no rights and they are really struggling. And yet, I can guarantee, I've been to the Minister in South Australia, I've written to her for the last almost two years now, and I have not yet gotten a response. I've asked, can we come and speak to you? We have so much experience and knowledge of trafficking and what has been done around the world in response to it, that we can't even get our own government to even want to listen to us, to even acknowledge that we have a problem. Yeah. And yet there's a generational build-up of how many of us are here who are growing up with the impact and are struggling that have nowhere to turn. You know, yeah. there is not one support that's funded to deal with those who have come from a traffic situation. Yeah. And that's abysmal. And that's reflected around the world. Australia is actually pretty good in terms of supporting adoptees compared to America or yes. other countries around the world who just fail abysmally to give us any support. I read some figures that said that between 1989 and the year 2000, there were approximately 30,000 children adopted internationally from Romania and that this represented 900 million US dollars in business transactions and that the majority of these children were not orphans, in fact, which, which we can accept as, as pretty standard. What happens to these children when this information is out there in the public sphere? You know that you were part of a group of children that generated $900 million in economic value for somebody somewhere. What is the impact, in your opinion, of of knowing that part of your adoption and your life story and, and the trajectory of your life is based on somebody profiting off this? It's a gut-wrenching experience that we live. Every adoptee knows that we were paid for. I eventually asked my parents and I found out because through some of the letters they had written how much they had paid for me. And, you know, it's one of those really shush topics in this country adoption where nobody talks about the fact that we were bought and paid for. Adoptive parents, they never talk about it with their children. And yet it is a huge emotional struggle for adoptees to wrap their heads around, I was actually bought and you know, bought and sold, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and especially when the, the, they find out that they were also trafficked and stolen and sold. And I'm not saying that the adoptive parents' fault because often they've been so naive that they've stepped into this space thinking they're doing something good, but actually inevitably finding out later when their child turns up that they were trafficked, they're, they're devastated. But nobody tells them when they're walking into it hey, have you thought about what are you going to do if you find out years later that your child's actually been stolen? How are you going to feel towards her birth family? How are you going to respond? You know, nobody asks those tough questions at the very beginning when they're actually thinking of considering inter-country adopting a child, and yet they should be, because we've seen from 70 years that this is very common for a child to be bought and sold, for, for the parents to be tricked, for, for the incentive to be just from poverty alone. But it, it breaks my heart every time when I hear adoptive parents these days who have young kids who are under 10 saying to me or saying in some forum, oh, you know, I want to go and search for the child and, and I want to do a DNA test and try and find them. And I'm thinking, why are you doing that now? Yeah. Why weren't you doing that before you adopted the child to make sure yeah. <laughs> the child was actually a true, legitimate, you know, relinquished child? So you started ICAV, I guess, as a form of healing for yourself as well. Yeah. How 
has that evolved over the years and how has your concept of, of doing good and helping others through ICAV evolved to, to be where you're at now? Oh, it's so different. Like when I first started ICAV and when I was first searching in my own journey to understand myself, I was one of those who said, oh, adoption's been great. My adoption life has been awesome. You know, I've gained so much and my adoptive parents are amazing. I was one of those who would say and talk about how wonderful it was. But that's because I just was so out of touch with my own losses because nobody had ever said anything to me to even indicate that I should be unhappy or that I should have anything to be sad about. And so I literally had just buried it all. But yet I would have these crucial moments in my life, like, for example, just watching a movie where someone dies I would somehow just be so triggered to experience such intense grief. And I'm like, does everyone feel like this or is it just me? So I just, I really had no clue. I had no language. I had no words to describe my experience or to even know internally that half of what I'd lived in my life was actually about my relinquishment trauma and and not knowing who I'd come from and where I was. It wasn't until, you know, the first 10 years of actually forming ICAB and going on that personal journey and starting to share my voice for the first time and putting words to that journey that I even found out about a lot of the the things that I now talk about as if they're everyday stuff. I actually hated anything Asian. I pushed it all away. I didn't want to associate with Asian people. I hated looking Asian. I would never date an Asian guy. I was wow. so anti-Asian, you know, because I was so focused on being so white and just fitting into this mainstream culture and being one of everybody that I ignored and pushed it all away, and that's how far I was. So it took me a long time to actually get to a point where I could like what I looked like without kind of, you know, wanting to throw up. And to get to a point where I could start to embrace even my heritage and my background. And it's taken me, you know, a decade to get to the point where I really love now my Asian culture, my Asian heritage. There is still a lot that I feel like I haven't really truly explored it right in depth. And and it's like, but I know that it's an unfolding event where there's little bits and pieces. And having now married into an Asian family, you know, it's like, it's just awesome because suddenly I feel like I'm the person I was actually born to be yeah. instead of the fake adopted person who was just like a, a chameleon. I was just blending in and fitting in, but I wasn't really me. That's the sad reality is that for so many of us, we live that life experience of being chameleon and, and yet we're not truly authentic because yeah. we haven't actually found that true authenticity. And it's not until you go and explore your country, your heritage, your race, your people, and where you come from that we find that so over the years as i journeyed individually i then then because i was connecting with so many adoptees around the world you know i came across those who i used to call anti-adoption because they were so way up there in terms of from where i was at that time and i never wanted to take a position and i always just say no i don't have a view anti or pro i'm just me and i'm just dealing with my own right But over the years, it got to the point eventually, and because I started speaking at government level in Australia and representing adoptees here and doing that kind of stuff, that I thought, you know what? I took a break for three years, and in that time, I really thought hard about where do I want this to go, what do I really believe? And 
when I had been doing ICAB as a support network, I had never wanted it to be political because I knew that, I knew from my own position that as soon as you start to take on a political angle, it really challenges your individuality as to, you know, how do you really think of your own adoption? If you're going to be anti, does that mean that you have to say that your whole adoption was terrible and awful and, and it was insignificant and shouldn't have been done? And that's the biggest challenge with adopting space is that as soon as we start to take a political view on it, we have to actually apply it to our own individual adoption, which is really hard because suddenly you've got to be challenged to almost delegitimize your own existence. Yeah. So can you imagine doing that for yourself? It's extremely mentally hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably why the big proportion of inter-country adoptees just don't ever want to get to the political realm yeah. because they don't want to have to yeah, invalidate their own life experience and life journey. And I guess for me, I eventually got to the point personally where I just went, you know what? I can't help anymore but to see the big picture and I can't ignore it anymore. And I can't not say something anymore, even if I know it offends people or even if I know that it's not what they want to hear. Because it's so important that we find our true authentic space. And, and that to me is the most important thing is the inter-country adoptees are able to be authentic about our experience. That we're able to say the truth without feeling like we are judged or without feeling like we're criticized. And that we can have that truth coexist with the fact too that we have been adopted. You can't undo it and it's not like you, you want to undo it. But at the same time, you want to acknowledge that there was a sliding door moment where your life could have been radically different but different is just different. It's not better or worse. Is there someone who has or is an influence on you in, in supporting you to do this work or influencing your practice of helping others? There are a number of adoptees who I really look up to who are my peers. It's the adoptees, my fellow adoptees, who go through the journey and actually have a balanced perspective. That is a rare find, yeah. you know, to find those who can step outside of their own personal journey that be quite balanced in how they view adoption regardless of their personal journey. So this one's a bit more broad, the next question. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? So when I'm talking about that, I'm thinking something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking as a society. Okay, when I applied to inter-country adoption, I guess I would have to say it's something around the topic of justice, justice for, you know, justice, because in inter-country adoption today, we don't have justice for, and I hate to call the word birth family, but most people know it that way. But it is our families of loss who have the least justice of all. When they find out that adoption really means this when not not what they thought when they've been tricked or when their children have been stolen there is absolutely no justice for them at all in this current world and when you apply justice for adoptees there is no justice for us we had absolutely no choice in what happened to us there is so little to support us in our long-term journey we can't undo it's very rare to undo an inter-country adoption most adoptees even now still don't even really know they can even do it or haven't even thought about it. But, but there is no sense of justice. And for the adoptees, particularly those who've been rehomed, trafficked, deported, no citizenship given, there is no justice 
for those people because we do absolutely nothing to help them, not even from a legal perspective because there are often no lawyers who even know how to find justice for them. And then for the adoptive families who get the worst in this country adoption where they find out their child was trafficked, there is no justice for them either because suddenly they realise they've participated in what is probably a criminal activity, but but yet they didn't really know. And yeah. so justice is a huge theme that applies to every member of the triad in the country adoption that is currently not very well addressed and, and hugely lacking. So if you could get a message to everybody through this podcast, <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> and, and if it was something that you would know that every single person would hear, what would it be? Just a short message, what would you want to say? Inter-country adoption is not black and white. It is so hugely complex and please do not go into it with your eyes shut. You know, you really need to educate yourself and understand the factors at play and the underlying. You've really got to look deep at what's going on if, if countries are sending children from one country to another. You know, you've got to question and challenge that status quo and ask why are they doing that and how is it happening and, and is it right? I think the, the easiest way to understand it is if you as a parent had a child now and something happened to you, do you think it would be right to send your child to Africa to go and live with an African instead of parent? If you say no, then why should it apply the, the way in reverse? It's got to be where people start to come to understand the realities of what's really going on. So tell me about a person who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why? I guess my criteria of doing good is where you're doing good where it absolutely is good and there is no negative downside to it. Mm. And I think it's pretty impossible probably to... Uh, and, and the reason why I say it's probably pretty impossible to actually do that is because we come from an angle of doing good that is so myopic, you know, let's be honest. Yeah. We, we do good from the basis of our own value system. And so... How can you ever assume that the good you're, that you think you're doing is actually good to someone else whose viewpoint could be completely different? That's the beauty of your podcast, right, is that it's, it's raising awareness to the fact that you might think you're doing good, but really, please, think about what you're really doing because fundamentally underlying that, are you really doing good or are you just serving your own needs and purposes and, and self-gratification? Absolutely. You know, I think at the end of the day, that's where inter-country adoption crosses that line, where it is ultimately a very self-centered thing to do to adopt a child out of its country and assume that you are giving it a better life. That in itself, as a as a fundamental belief, is to be challenged. Yeah. And I hope that this is the message that I get out there. So, Linnell, a bit of a lighter question: Where's your favourite place on earth? I would probably say I love going back to my home country, Vietnam. Yep. You know, every time I go back there, I just feel this energy, this connection. Even though I've barely been there, there's something about going back to Ho Chi Minh that just I just love. Yeah. It's like I've returned and I'm, I'm where I should be. Amazing. Um, and as much as I'm an Aussie and as much as I love Australia, I do also have this part of me that also loves yeah. you know where I'm from yeah. and, and I'm so grateful and happy and so proud of myself for actually arriving at that now because compared to where I was years ago where I just didn't want anything to do with Asia or Asian people wow you know I've moved such a long way yeah you have what book are you reading or podcast are you listening to at the moment well I read 
read so much on intercountry adoption. So at the moment, I'm reading uh, Eva Lobel's big, massive thesis on uh, trafficking in intercountry adoption. So yeah, <laughs> so that's what that's the kind of stuff I read. Not exactly light, but you know. No, not light. I don't imagine much of what you read is light. Well. That kind of wraps us up. I want to thank you for being my guest. It's been hugely eye-opening for me to hear such a personal perspective on an issue that I was, you know, already very aware of the challenges within, but I think having heard your story, your perspectives and, and the work that you do to support others, I think it really brings to the surface what a hugely complex issue intercountry adoption is uh, and how the impacts of that can be lifelong and intergenerational, not just for the adopted child, but for both their biological family and their adoptive family. And I, and I think this episode has really hit that home. There's so much more I could talk to you about. I'm sure we could talk for hours and I would love to potentially get you back on next season and, and dig further into some of this. But for now, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.